This is the Millennial Millionaire Through Real Estate Podcast. Real estate investing isn't that complicated. Mm-hmm. It's hard, right? And, and it takes a lot of work and effort, but the actual steps to get it done, it's not a very complicated process. And I think oftentimes people confuse simple and complicated with easy and hard. You're listening to the Millennial Millionaire Through Real Estate Podcast, where we discuss tangible tips, tricks, and best practices for becoming financially free. The show is designed for people who want to either start real estate investing or for those who want to scale their real estate business. What's up, guys? I'm your host, Jonathan Farber. I hope you guys are well and healthy. For any first-time listeners, thank you guys for being here. I really appreciate it. The goal of this show is to explore ways to become financially free through real estate or to increase passive cash flow through real estate. A little bit about myself. I work in corporate America at a software company and my side hustle is real estate. I currently own eight units, a mix of small multifamily and short-term rentals, aka Airbnb. I've house hacked, bird, flipped, and as mentioned, short-term rentals to name a few strategies. I love to network, so hit me up on any platform, Facebook, LinkedIn, Bigger Pockets, Instagram, or just search Jonathan Farber Real Estate and you should find me. Also, if you are not already in the exclusive Facebook group, this is where I post most and do a lot of behind-the-scenes content of sharing deals, strategies, and systems. See you there. Let's get to today's show sponsor. After building my own portfolio, speaking with over 100 investors on this podcast and many more from the Facebook group, I've noticed a few common themes of why people don't get started or remain successful in real estate. They don't have the right team, they aren't sure of their market, or they don't know where to find deals. The people at Martel Turnkey are fixing this. That's why they offer fully turnkey properties in markets where the numbers actually make sense. What does this mean? It means they buy properties at a discount, fix them up, put a tenant in place, and oh yeah, give you options for property management or financing. They have people on the ground in cities where you can still cash flow and see appreciation every single month. I'll say it as simply as this. When you have the right team and systems in place, there's no reason not to get started. If you like a property or have any questions, you can schedule a phone call by clicking on the link below or going on their website and clicking on the contact tab to set up a call. There is no hard sell, push, or commitment needed. The call will be there to answer any questions you have or to see if or how their products might be a good fit for you and what you're looking for. So visit martelturnkey.com and click contact or send an email to info at martelturnkey.com today. What's going on, guys? Today we have a special episode with Tony Robinson. Tony is the host of the BP Rookie Podcast. For any of you who follow Bigger Pockets or follow this podcast, you know that I'm a big fan of that podcast. And that is how I got kind of started investing in real estate from Bigger Pockets originally. A little background on Tony he lives in Southern California. He has a small portfolio of regular rentals in Louisiana, and he has a growing portfolio of short-term rentals in Tennessee. He's got a great story. He still works a full-time job. He talks all about that, about his path to financial freedom and why he still keeps his job and what he's doing creatively with it to manage his time and also leverage it to do more deals. Um, Learned a lot in this episode, but the main learnings I had and you guys can take away from this is how he scaled to, um, I don't even know if he said the exact unit number. I want to say it's over 10 units right now uh, in total, but he did that in under a year and he stayed in his full-time job and he managed it and he's using it, like I said, to get more deals done. So it's really cool. And that's kind of my strategy as well to stay in the job and use it to get more loans and have a higher stable income 
and then leave whenever I feel that's uh, not in use anymore. So that's that. Today's tangible tip is a learning strategy. If you're anything like me, guys, there's always a stack of books or videos or podcasts that you want to check out. I found that I wasn't really getting back to any of them. So now what I do is I keep a weekly um, list within Notion or Asana, whatever. It could just be a spreadsheet. But basically, I use Notion. I just link anything that I want to learn about into this table that I can then check back on anytime I'm curious or want to just spend an hour or two learning something. I used to try to pick a topic. Now, just whatever on the sheet interests me, I'll just check out watch a couple hours of YouTube on or read about or whatever podcast, and then just feel like I can check it off. And that I actually got a little smarter instead of just having this list pile up and feeling like I'm not learning about anything for a specific reason. So that helped me get a lot more clear and uh, also get the feeling of checking off the box and getting it out of the queue. So that was today's tangible tip. Without any further ado, great episode today with Tony Robinson. All right, Tony, what's going on, man? Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much what for being up, here, brother. Thank you for having me, man. Excited to be here. Excited to hopefully bring some value to, to your listeners. I'm sure you will. This is as we've had so many episodes lately. There's just so much good stuff we're talking about before. We just got to hit record and get to it. And uh, I think your message is going to really resonate with our listenership because you're doing a lot of creative strategies. You're doing a lot of stuff that I think beginner investors could get their arms around and also be successful with. And now you're scaling it into a lot of other cool projects as well. So for those that haven't come across your content yet, you mind just giving our listeners a quick background from a high level of how you got into real estate and then also from a high level, what you do today in real estate. Yeah. So, so what I do today, um, first I'm, I'm the co-host for the bigger pockets, real estate Ricky show. Um, so every Wednesday you can, you can catch me there with my co-host Ashley care. And we, we speak to a lot of the folks that are probably in the seats of a lot of your listeners, people that are, um, you know, have that desire to get started, but haven't quite pulled the trigger yet. Um, I've got a small handful of long-term rentals uh, in Louisiana, and then I've got a, a growing portfolio of short-term rentals, both in California and in Tennessee. Um, but in terms of where I started, um, I, I actually bought my first property in October of 2019, so a little over a year ago. And uh, since then, we've purchased uh, four long-term rentals uh, three short-term rentals, and we have uh, three more short-term rentals under contract. One that'll close in January, uh, another one that'll close in May. That's new construction, and another new construction in July. So we, we've grown quite a bit um, in in the last year or so. Um, yeah, that, that's that's where I'm at today. That's where where I started. Perfect, man. Okay, so the typical question I I dig into uh, is how you know you are not in this game that long, but you seem to be picking up momentum and scaling, adding units, creating cash flow in a pretty short period of time. So we'd love to just go back to that first deal, but then also kind of talk through the scale of how you went from one to two to three and how you continue to scale. But we'd love to hear about that first deal. Yeah. So before I dive into the first deal, I just want to start with like one caveat. Um, uh, you know, a lot of people hear other people's stories and they hear, hear how they've scaled and how they've done all these cool things. But for those of you that hadn't, haven't started yet, my advice to you is just focus on that first one, right? Just, just focus on getting that first deal done. Because if, if, you're, if your um, focus when you have zero deals is how do I get to 20, you're going to overwhelm yourself. But if your focus when you're at zero properties is how do I get to one, that's a much more manageable um, like, like workload, right? And, and, and the goal seems a little bit more real. So that's my, that's my first piece of advice. 
Um, yep. Like no one's the, the purpose of the first deal is to show you how to get to that second, third, fourth, and fifth deal. So I wouldn't be where I'm at today had I not just kind of bit the bullet and, and got that first deal done. So that's that's my my first caveat. Um, but but going back to the first deal, I, I live in California. Um, you know, for for traditional kind of long term rentals, California isn't the best place to go, especially in the single family space. And I knew that. Um, and it's obviously super expensive. So I, I had to go to another market where um, I could actually make my money work for me. Uh, so I landed in Shreveport, Louisiana. I had some family out there. It's um, the the third major kind of metro in Louisiana after New Orleans and Baton Rouge. Um, and I, I, I kind of landed on that market because I was able to find really attractive financing. I found a local credit union that was willing to lend 100% of the purchase price and the rehab for a property, as long as my all-in cost was less than about 75, 72% of the ARV. Um, so when I found that, I was just kind of head first into that market, built my team, um, and I, I was able to find a property in a, in a couple months. And um, I was using the Burr strategy, so I found some properties that needed some work. Um, that mm -hmm. first one, uh, it was listed for, I want to say, I think I bought it for about a hundred thousand, put another 55 ish into the rehab. Um, and it appears for about two thirty after it was done. Um, so when I had that first deal done, I was like, man, this is great. Um, and I kind of snowballed that and snowballed that one into my second one pretty quickly. Um, so yeah, that, that's the, that's the first deal. Perfect. Okay. And just for those that don't know, you mind defining Burr and why it's a good strategy in general, but maybe especially for someone that's just starting out. Yeah, so so Burr stands for buy rehab. Um, uh, sorry, what are all the R's? Buy rehab, rent, uh, refinance, repeat. Right. Yep. Um, so you're you're basically buying a property that's um, in distress, right? That that needs some work, um, that you can buy below kind of market value. You invest some money to bring up the the value of that property, and once you've increased the value of that property, you go back to your bank and you say, Hey, this I bought this property for one hundred thousand. It's now worth, you know, two hundred thousand. Can I get a new loan? And you give me some of that money back that that I initially invested. So it's a really good way to make your your capital um, kind of go further than it would otherwise. Um, and, and and you see a lot of new folks uh, kind of using that strategy to to quickly build their uh, their portfolios. So I want to dig into out of state burn investing a little bit more here because um, speaking with a lot of people on the podcast and speaking with a lot of beginner investors in my group. Um, there's two camps, you know, I think there's one that's very conservative and they don't realistically see how they can buy a property from out of state, rehab it and execute the business model. And then there's the other camp that is, I would say overly optimistic. Uh, I would even cautiously say naive or, um, probably just a little like egotistical about how easy something could be. Uh, and I see, flaw in both of those thinkings, you know, the conservative side might think everything is a little too hard and the brash side might think everything is too easy. And there's definitely somewhere in the middle on that. Usually uh, for our group where it's like a bunch of people that just love getting after it, I'll, I'll typically, and I'm the same way, but I'll typically have to kind of rein them back and say, um, it's, it's not as easy as you think to add value from a thousand miles away on your first deal. And there's a lot that can go wrong, not to discourage anyone, but I'd love to hear how you thought through that process and what you did or needed to do to feel comfortable to execute that on your first deal. Yeah. So there, there's two pieces to that. Um, the, the first piece is mindset and the second piece is, is having the right team. So on the mindset piece. So for the folks in your, in your audience that are super conservative that say, I could never buy a property, you know, multiple States away that I've never seen in person. The, the question that I always pose to those people is even if you saw the property in person, 
how much value would you really add, right? If you've never invested before, and this is your first time doing this, how much value do you really get out of walking through that property? For me, I knew that I wasn't going to add much value, right? Because I was new and I, I was new at this. I didn't know what I was doing, but I knew that I had my, my, my agent walk through the property who, who worked with investors. I had a, a general contractor walk the property and give me a bid. I had a property inspector walk the, the, the property and give me their inspection report. I'm probably not going to add as a new investor, I'm probably not going to add much more value, if any, above what the three of those folks were, were going to give me. So that's the, the feedback that I give to most people. It's really kind of an emotional thing when you want to see the property in person, right? It's an emotional thing. Of all of the properties that I purchased over the last year, I've seen zero in person before I bought them. Zero, right? And it's because I understand now that I don't need to see them. If, if I've got a team of people that I trust and I know that they can go out there and give me all the information that I need, then from there, it's just running the numbers. So that, that's the first piece is, is you got to approach it with that mindset. And then the, the second piece of that I kind of alluded to already is, is the team piece, right? You spend a lot of time upfront finding the right people to help you build kind of your machine to quickly churn through these deals so you know what works and what doesn't. So for me, like I said, I had um, an agent that I, I liked and I went through four or five agents before I found one that I really liked, right? So don't, mm -hmm. don't stop on your first agent if they don't give you what you want. Um, I had a general contractor who was a recommendation from my agent. And, and again, I think I went through two or three contractors before I found one that I really liked. Um, then I had a property inspector. I've worked with him on, I think, all of the four properties that I bought in Louisiana. Um, so when you have that team in place, they kind of know what you're looking for. They know your process and it's easier to kind of take that leap of buying something out of state. One question on that. Another one that we get a lot is when do you sign a buyer's agreement with an agent? Now you said you went through a couple and I feel like a lot of beginner investors are not sure what the typical dialogue or just relationship should be with uh, an agent. And a lot of times I feel they get pressured into signing that buyer's agreement early and they regret it. So can you just talk through maybe your process of finding an agent and then having that rapport and explaining to them what you were looking for and then making sure that they were the right one for you? Yeah. So when you say buyer's agreement, are you talking about the contract where the, the agent says, Hey, I'm, I'm going to like exclusively represent you on the, I, I I've never yes. signed one before. I've never okay. signed one before. Right. And I don't know if it was the markets, you know, the, that I invest in, but I've, I've never had that. And honestly, unless I've done a few deals with that agent, I probably wouldn't. Right. Because mm -hmm. it, if I don't know how you operate, I don't know, you know, what kind of value you can bring to the table. I'm not going to slow down my real estate investing career just because we signed this contract together. Mm -hmm. Okay. Got it. So you do the deal. Um, would love to just hear how it went. And, and also if you could just also touch on the financing, um, how you put the deal together and then how it went. Yeah, so I'll switch on the financing piece first, and I can kind of walk you through the the story of the of the deal. Um, so the financing was with a, a local credit union in uh, Shreveport, Louisiana, where I was investing, and again they they agreed to fund one hundred percent of both the purchase and the rehab as long as those two costs came in at about it was about seventy three percent of the ARV. That was kind of their marker. They said, hey, if you can buy it and fix it for about seventy three percent of what it'll be worth afterwards, we'll give you everything. I said, okay, I found the deal, all the numbers checked out. Um, so the way that it works is the, the bank cuts a check to purchase the property initially, right? So the, the seller gets their money. Um, and then I have to submit a bid to them uh, during the escrow process to show, hey, here's the work that I'm going to do. And then they say, based on that uh, bid, here's what we think the property will appraise for afterwards. So that's how they kind of value the work on their side. And then once we close in the property, 
uh, we have all of the money for the rehab set aside in, in kind of a separate account. Um, and then it gets broken up into four draws. So the contractor says, hey, I finished one fourth of the job. The bank sends someone out to validate that. And then once they validate that, validate that they release a, a fourth of the funds to the contractor. So you, you, we kind of go through that process. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it was really, really cool, right? Because I had very, very little money out of pocket. It was really just like the inspection, um, gosh, I can't, I think I paid for the appraisal, but it was, you know, less than a thousand dollars out of pocket to like actually get this deal closed. So mm-hmm. really, really good, you know, kind of return on, on my capital there. Um, so it, in terms of actually managing the project, I would probably sync with the GC on like a weekly basis, him or someone on his team, uh, we'd FaceTime the kind of walking through the property. Um, if there are questions that came up about, you know, should we go this color or that color, this finish, or that finish, they shoot me a text or send me a photo. Um, so a lot of it was just kind of all digital kind of communication, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we, we obviously had some setbacks. Gosh, I, I can't remember at this point what some of the big ones were. But like with any project, you know, as you get in, you start opening up walls and things like something always goes wrong. And the 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 rehab was initially supposed to take um, about two and a half months, it ended up taking about four months just because different things happened um, that, that kind of set us back. But with any real estate deal, that's almost always going to happen, right? And going back to the earlier point about the folks that are conservative about investing out of state, um, I think that is something that you have to be willing to, you have to give up some of that control. Because if I was in, you know, if that was in my backyard and I could drive by the, 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 the job every single day, I'm sure maybe some of those delays wouldn't have happened, right? But the fact that I'm multiple states away and I can only get in contact through phone, FaceTime, text message, there's not as much pressure on the GC to, you know, kind of solve some of these problems quickly. So that is something that you have to give up, right, is, is a little bit of that control. But overall, man, like I, I can't complain because the, the deal turned out great. I found a great tenant. They've been there, you know, since we rehabbed the property and I learned so much on that first deal. And it really gave me the confidence to say real estate investing isn't that complicated. Mm-hmm. It's hard, right? And, and it takes a lot of work and effort, but the actual steps to get it done, it's not a very complicated process. And I think oftentimes people confuse simple and complicated with easy and hard. Right. Like real estate investing is very hard, but it's not very complicated. There's so much information out there. You can go read, a, you know, all the books you need, watch all the YouTube videos. You're going to figure out what the steps are that you need to do. You just got to have the courage to actually go out there and make it happen. Spot on. Reminds me of a Jim Rohn quote where everyone knows it's about eating healthy and exercising to get in good shape, but no one wants the simple answer. They want to hear something that's just maybe not so obvious, not hiding in plain sight, but it is not easy to do push-ups and sit-ups and not eat Chick-fil-A when it looks great and all that, but it's pretty simple. The actual steps hard, maybe not so much. It, maybe it's not easy, but it's, it's very simple. So I appreciate you calling that out. Um, so what happened next from, from that deal? Like, and, and this is a unique situation because in tip, in a typical bird deal, for those that know, your goal is to get all your money back out of it, but you didn't even put any money into it. So now you have a, or, or did you get anything additionally back on the refinance? Did it come back higher or lower? It, it came back uh, pretty much right where we thought it was going to come back at. Um, I, I just did, I did not do a cash out refi because I wanted to get a better term. I think it was like a, almost like a point difference or something like that. If I went with the cash out refi versus, versus just like a rate and term. So I did the rate and term just to lock in the lower rate. Um, once I, once I got that deal done, um, I knew all, all along that my goal was to scale quickly. Um, but, you know, as, as you know, like, it's hard to scale quickly for capital reasons, for time reasons, for energy reasons. So I ended up partnering with someone um, and 
uh, we were able to leverage both of our incomes, both of our, our time to really focus on growing the portfolio quickly. So that's how we, we bought our, our second house I bought, or my second house I bought with him. And then we kind of snowballed that into all the other purchases that we made. Got it. And we kind of jumped into your story and your actual deal pretty quickly, but um, I might've missed it. Did you have a full-time job? Do you still have a full-time job that you're balancing with this? Or, or I guess, yeah, maybe if you could just comment on that. Yeah, no, I, I do have a full-time job and it's, it's honestly a, a pretty uh, demanding uh, full-time job at that. Um, and, and I get a lot of questions about, you know, Tony, how do you balance your real estate investing, this growing portfolio with your W2 and your family? And my, my first response is that it's not easy, right? There, there's no like magic button you can press to, you know, create more than 24 hours in a day. But the way that I view balance, and I learned this a while ago, I can't remember who I heard it from, but balance shouldn't be looked at in the terms of like a, a single 24 hour period, right? Like, like it's not balance doesn't mean that every single day you're allocating the same amount of time to work, family, you know, fitness, business, all those other things. But when you look over the course of a month or, or over the course of a week, like you should have relative balance in that sense, right? So like today, today's Sunday, and I'm pretty much in my office all day, right? And, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time with my family today because I, I got things to do, right? But mm -hmm. yesterday, I was with my family all day, right? So there, there, there's some ways to balance those things out. And that's how I've been able to kind of manage it for myself. Got it. And we didn't even dig into this too much, but how old are you, if you don't mind sharing? 29. I'll be, I'll be 30 in like a, like a little over a month. Okay, cool. So that's perfect because I'm 27. And again, I, most of our audience is between 20 and 30. And it's all about, I guess, for a lot of them trying to figure out what goal to set and what level of financial freedom they want to be at to maybe leave their job. So, you know, it's like, I used to think about it totally differently. Like I'm 27 now, and oddly can say I'm in the lower rungs of financial freedom. Like if I didn't, and I still have a full-time job too, but if I didn't like things would still be okay, but I have my reasons for staying in my full-time job right now because it enables me to continue doing a couple of things that uh, I wouldn't be able to do without it. So can you talk through your thought process on why you're keeping your job or what your plan is, uh, or if you have a number in mind that you would need to get to, to walk away from your job or just, you know, how you think about, about all that. So uh, I guess just a, just a personal story, right. Uh, before I, I answer that question. So, um, when I was a young kid, uh, my, my dad was the general manager for this big warehousing company here in SoCal. And he had been with the company for like 16 years. You know, he started on the dock, worked his way up, you know, and he ended up getting promoted to, to the manager of this building at one point. Um, with very little notice, they called my dad and they said, hey, we're going bankrupt and everybody's losing their job. So, you know, my dad put almost two decades of his life into this company and he ends up, you know, losing his job, you know, and, and that was the livelihood for our family. You know, my mom was a stay-at-home mom. My dad was a breadwinner and that was hard for us. And that taught me very early on that, that I can never or I should never rely on one single source for uh, income to, to provide for myself and for my family. So that's kind of the, the way that I've always approached it. And, and for me, it's not always so much like that there's this mad dash to leave my W2 because, you know, I feel like I work for a pretty cool company. I like the work that I do, but I also want to make sure that I have security in case something happens that's outside of my control. So that that's kind of the, the way that I frame it. But um, for me, it's not, it's more so having the option, right, to, to leave that job if I wanted to. And I, I honestly wouldn't feel comfortable doing that unless I was, unless my business was bringing in close to double of what my W-2 does, right? Because, you know, there, there's other things that happen when you, when you don't have a, a solid W-2 job, right? Like that, that income fluctuates. 
um, you know, you're going to spend more on health insurance and things like that. And, you know, your, your taxes might, you know, so th there's all these different things to consider. So if you think that uh, the, the safest route is just, okay, as soon as I'm making close to what I'm making my W-2 to leap, I mean, that, that's a risk that you got to take. But for me, I want a little bit more security. Makes sense. It's different for everyone. And it also depends on your personality. And if you have a family or if it's just you. And also, I mean, it's so hard to blanket statement this answer because people want to know, but it's also, how do you want to live? Do you mind house hacking and having three roommates until you're 30? Do you want to live in a beautiful apartment with a view? Like these are all things that are just trade-offs, but will dictate how soon or what your lifestyle will be on your path to financial freedom. So I don't want to glaze over that, but it's a very specific thing. And clearly you've thought it through and you can figure out a time management strategy to balance it. So, um, okay. The first deal, uh, out of state Burr, which is amazing. Uh, can you then take us through maybe your second and third deal, how they came together and then high level from how you found them and how you financed them? Yeah. So the, the second deal, so my first and my second deal were both off of the MLS, right? So nothing, nothing really, no one can it. find deals on the MLS. Not possible. <laughs> right. Yeah. So my first two deals right off the MLS, I will say that, you know, obviously the cash flow wasn't as great as something, you know, if I went like direct to seller, but it worked and it taught me what I needed to know for the, for those future deals. So we got, I got my first property. Um, and like I said, fall of 2019, I got my second one actually a year ago yesterday. So December 19th, 2019, I got my second property closed. Um, and then we, we went through the rehab process on that one. That one took about three months as well. So it finished up in, in early 2020. Um, and then from there, we took a little bit of a pause. And then over the summer, we bought two more properties. Both of these were from wholesalers. Um, we used some kind of creative financing with like lines of credit and other things like that to, to get those ones closed. Um, and then after we bought that, that fourth property in Louisiana, we made the decision to pivot into short-term rentals. And we've, we've been kind of full steam in that ever since. So we bought our first short-term rental in September in uh, Tennessee, in Pigeon Forge, Tennessee. Uh, we bought our second short-term rental here in Joshua Tree, California um, in, gosh, I want to say October. Um, we had our, our, our third short-term rental also here in Joshua Tree, California that closed last month. Um, and then we've got another uh, cabin in Tennessee that closes in January and then two more that close kind of in the, the late spring and early summer. Mm -hmm. Okay. Got it. Um, how different is the business model for you on the short-term rental stuff versus the Burr stuff? Because a lot of, I'd say people that are interested in buying short-term rentals in our group, what they're doing is 10% down second home loans and to like kind of achieve the benefit of that, they're looking for more turnkey properties. So were you also looking to do fix up? Were you doing anything creative with second home loans, stuff like that, or, you know, anything along that route? Yeah. So yeah, very different strategies in terms of the kind of properties that we're looking for, right? Um, on the long-term rental side, we're, we were exclusive or fo focused exclusively on properties that needed work, right? Like we weren't looking for anything turnkey because in, a, in the, in the long-term rental space, you, you won't make any money doing that, right? Um, but in the short-term rental space, it's almost the exact opposite. Like we're really looking for properties that don't need a lot of work right now because we know that the finances work so, so well, right? Like we're, we're talking like 30, 40% cash on cash return buying turnkey in the short-term rental space. And we, we want to make sure that we're going turnkey because it allows us to accelerate our, our purchase of these properties, right? We're not managing the rehabs and, you know, we can kind of turn them on, on, on almost day one and really start recognizing that revenue. Um, in terms of how we're financing it, um, we, we actually have used the 10% down, uh, like vacation home. Um, but there are some limits there. Like, you know, I, I think right now the, the max is like 575 or something like that on, on an FHA. So, you know, some of our cabins are above that price. So we had a, you know, we kind of got to put it up a little bit, but where we can use that 10%, we have been. 
Mm -hmm. Okay. So can you just take us through how those have been going? Any main learnings? It's an area that a lot of our listeners are interested in and starting to figure out if they want to do arbitrage, if they want to do a second home loan, if they think there's too much risk, um, just, just any, any beliefs that they may have that you could talk to a beginner about from your experience. It, I think it depends on what your strategy is, right? Um, I think there is more risk associated with short-term rentals. Uh, you never know how uh, regulations are going to change if cities are going to, you know, kind of sour on the idea of short-term rentals. But for me, I will probably never buy another single family home as a long-term rental investment. Like the, the numbers just don't make sense um, when you compare them to what you get on a short-term rental. Um, if I do go back to the long-term rental space, it'll most likely be like in apartments, um, and kind of doing like a, a syndication or something like that, but buying, you know, a three bedroom, two bath home as a long-term rental is just not, not something I'll do anymore. Um, but again, it, it depends on what you want, right? Like it, it is more labor intensive to, to run a short-term rental, not by much, honestly, not, not by much, but you know, it is definitely a more active, uh, kind of investment that you need to make. But if you're willing to make that investment, you get, you know, three, four, five X, the, the returns. Um, but for, for folks that are looking to get started in short-term rental, uh, in the short-term rental space, my advice would be to first, um, find a market that makes sense for you. Um, again, I'm very comfortable investing out of state and kind of long distance from my home. So I really wanted to target sp spaces where, um, one, there was kind of built-in attractions. So we, we invest in, in the Great Smoky Mountains, which is like the, the most visited national park in the United States by far. I think they saw like 19 million visitors um, last year. And the next national park saw like 12 million. Um, so it, it's a really big gap. Um, we, we invest in Joshua, Joshua Tree, California, which, which is another main national park. Uh, so we like the, the markets to kind of have this built-in draw to, to get people there. And then secondarily, we like markets that are a bit more mature when it comes to short-term rentals, right? Like people were renting cabins in uh, Tennessee in the Great Smoky Mountains long before Airbnb and VRBO, right? Mm. Like they, it's been a very ingrained part of that economy. And, and that makes us feel a little bit more confident going into those markets because we know that there's a very low likelihood that the local governments would enact any kind of policies that would negatively impact the short-term rental space because it is such an integral part of what they do. So, you know, like I'm, I'm a little nervous for like, you know, some of these other markets where they're, they're just kind of popping up now because of Airbnb, because you never know how the local cities will, will react to that. Mm -hmm. Okay. How are you finding these deals? Uh, on the MLS, right? And, and that's another benefit of the short-term rental space is that um, you know, a lot of these things are just listed and, you know, maybe, maybe it was an Airbnb before, maybe it wasn't, but as long as the numbers work, that that's all that matters. Okay. Gotcha. And another one we get a lot is how do you know the numbers are going to work, um, down the analysis paralysis route. It's a tough space to very specifically forecast what you're going to make, especially with the tools, potential seasonality, potentially being a good operator or not, or being good with pictures or being in a location or not having a steep hill up your driveway. So how did you think about forecasting or getting comfortable enough to run your numbers to know you would be profitable? So the, the first two short-term rentals that we purchased, they were existing short-term rentals before we bought them. So it was a little easier for us to see, okay, here's what it did under the previous uh, owner. So we know that that's our baseline, right? And we believe that we could come in and make some changes to market it more aggressively, 
uh, be a be a bit more strategic with how we're pricing to really you know drive up occupancy and things like that. Um, so for us, that was kind of our baseline, right? We we purchased existing short term rentals, and then once you have a couple, then you've got your own baseline on how you perform, right? So then it makes a little bit more sense. Okay, we know that this cabin is going to do X Y Z, you know, in the next mm -hmm. twelve months. So this is a pretty comparable uh, property, so we can project it to do about the same. But the for, for those of you that aren't buying, you know, that, uh, that weren't lucky like me to buy an existing short-term rental, here, here are the things that I would suggest you do. First is go on AirDNA. Um, you know, you can sign up, I think, for a free trial. I think they might be doing free trials. Um, whatever market it is that, that you're looking to invest in, pull it up on there. Um, the, 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 the data on that website isn't always spot on, but it gives you a directionally correct kind of uh, path to go down. Um, once you kind of get familiar with the data on AirDNA, I would highly encourage you to start networking with people, right? Find other short-term rental owners and whatever market it is you're looking to invest in and just start asking questions. You'll be, you'll be surprised at how open people are about how their cabins are performing and, and what they feel is working right and what they feel isn't working. Um, so AirDNA, other owners, and if you're in a market that's really um, kind of heavily impacted or, or kind of heavily focused on STRs, there's probably some agents in that market that almost exclusively focus on short-term rentals as well. And you can always kind of leverage their expertise and their experience to, to get an understanding of, of how those how those properties might perform. Got it. Okay. Uh, last two boxes to check on this, because what I usually like to do with the show is just go down the route of people's typical reasons for not doing it and finding a deal, running the numbers are easy ones that I think people can hang on that oh, I can't find a deal or I don't know how to make it profitable. So I can't do this. So I'll just go back to not investing and working at a job I don't like. So um, the other two things, management and insurance, other very common questions we get. So whichever order you want to take those in, but um, I guess just one level further on each, are you self-managing or if you're, uh, if you're doing it yourself, are you doing anything to make it more efficient? And then insurance, I have a bunch of questions. So maybe we'll go down the management path first. Yeah, so we, we are self-managing all of our short-term rentals. I had a property manager in place for my long-term rentals, but we're self-managing our short-term rentals. Um, and yes, we do have some systems and processes in place that make it a little less labor-intensive. Um, so we use uh, like a property management software. We use Smart BNB, but that automates like all of our, our guest communication. You know, we have messages to go out before they check in, when they book, and all these other things that really reduce the amount of interaction that we need to have actually. Um, we have a cleaner uh, on, for all of our properties, right? So whenever a guest checks in, they get a notification, hey, here's a new booking. Um, so they, they know how to kind of manage all that. Um, and then we use Price Labs to help with our, our pricing structure. So instead of me having to do a bunch of research, research on my own about, you know, what are all these other comparable properties doing, we use Price Labs to kind of give us that. So honestly, we probably with the three that we have right now, we might spend like maybe 10 hours a week, you know, like kind of managing everything. Um, but it, it's not as labor intensive as people think. But we also try and do a lot of things to uh, prevent guests from reaching out and, and not in a bad way, but we, we try and anticipate what kind of questions that they'll ask. And then we work that into our process, right? So if we get multiple guests asking about, you know, where are the trash bags, right? <laughs> then we'll make sure to work that into our automated messaging so people know before they reach out where the trash bags are. We had a lot of guests that weren't sure how to use the HVAC system, like the heater and the cooling system. So we recorded a short video now that's in our digital guidebook, right? So we, we do these things as these questions come in and we, we kind of roll those into our processes to reduce the, the communication there. So it, it honestly hasn't been too bad self-managing the short-term rentals. Got it. And you mentioned, or I do this sometimes too, but you said a couple of times, we, 
are the short-term rentals you and a partner, you and a family member, or is that just you're saying that or? <laughs> yeah. So, so it's, uh, it's myself, uh, my wife and then my wife's cousin, okay. and we all kind of carry like a different, uh, you know, role and responsibility within the company. My, my wife, her face is on all of our listings. So if, if you look it up, you wouldn't even know. Um, so, so she's the one that does a lot of the, the guest communication. Um, mm -hmm. I do all of like the, the systems pieces. So like I manage the, the smart BNB software. I manage all of our pricing whenever we're, we're like updating listings or taking things live, I do all that stuff. And then our, our partner, he's like, you know, if, you know, he's the guy communicating with like the cleaner and like the handyman, or like, as we're buying these properties, he's the one on top of like making sure that we're doing everything we need to get closed. So we've all kind of taken on these different rules, but it works really well for us. That's cool. Okay. Like that. Um, okay. The, the last one. And uh, I actually just went through this again because I'm closing on a short-term rental property Tuesday or Wednesday. And for some reason, there was a lot of difficulty with insurance on this one. Not that I had on the other ones. Um, so can you just take us through like, like what you need to feel or need to have in place to feel secure or what, uh, what you recommend people have for as far as like protection on their short-term rental properties, if it's even needed. Yeah. So my, my partner, actually his W2 job is in insurance. Um, so he handles kind of all of our insurance related things for our business. So I'm honestly kind of ignorant in terms of like what kind of protection we have. So I wish I could give a more intelligent answer, but to me, that's the, the benefit of having a partner is that like, that's his expertise by and far. And he mm -hmm. manages all that. So as long as he feels good with like our risk exposure, I trust him, I trust him enough to kind of make that decision for us. Totally. That is a good answer too, because you've solved for it, but it doesn't have to be your problem to solve for. Um, but I do have a question, I guess, related to that, because uh, as we were talking about before we even hit record, um, having a good family integration with all this stuff, uh, I'd say makes it a lot easier and frictionless. And I'd say we have a fair amount of people that also listen or, you know, have questions that their wife or spouse isn't on board. And uh, you're going even a step further than that in a way that we see a lot of also successful people do it, that they empower their family, and they take a team approach to these projects. So um, I guess just at the beginning, was there anything that you felt you needed to do or call out or set expectations with that you're going to be working with your family and uh, it goes smoothly or any learnings along the way that you've had to adjust or think about working with family? Yeah, that, that's a really good question. I'll, I'll say that early on, uh, my wife wasn't very involved. So when, when we were focusing just on the long-term rentals, like that, that didn't pique her interest. And it was really just me and her cousin that were partnering on, on executing all those. But when, when we made the transition to short-term rentals, that, that interested her. And, and that's when we, we finally pulled her into the business. So I, I guess my first piece of advice, if, if folks are having a hard time kind of getting their spouse on board, um, maybe try a different approach, right? Maybe try a different strategy. If they don't like, you know, uh, if they don't like wholesaling, maybe they like flipping. If they don't like flipping, maybe they like short-term rentals. You know, there's so many different strategies to, to kind of get started with. So that'd be my first piece of advice. I, I think the, in terms of like setting expectations, um, we, honestly, we never really had to do that. And I, you know, my, my wife, she, we just got married, but we've been together since we were like seniors in high school. So we've, you know, we know each other inside and out. We know what each other's strengths are. Um, so it was just kind of a natural uh, progression, I guess, for us to say, Hey, I'll, I'll own these pieces. You own those pieces. And her, her cousin, who's our, our, our other partner, 
he's very kind of go with the flow guy. So it's, we, we haven't really had to have those kind of conversations as things pop up where we're like, Oh, who's going to take care of that. We just kind of raise our hand and someone does it, but it's, it's been pretty smooth for us so far. That's cool. All right, man. Awesome. Um, what's next. And, and I guess at this point, how do you think about, you know, scaling or growing this, um, while having a full-time job and then, you know, what is your maybe path out if you want that, or, you know, just how does it all kind of fit together over the next couple of years for you? I, I think right now the, the shorter term goal, and I say short term, but, uh, the, the goal is to get to 11 short term rentals by the end of 2022. Um, so we're, we're actually kind of pacing ahead of that right now. Uh, so, so maybe we, we exceed that goal, but that that's what it is right now. I think long-term, um, what I'd really like to establish is to bring some of the, like I see you've got the Joe Fairless book in the back, right? So you you maybe understand a little bit about apartment syndication, but for, for the, those that don't know, apartment syndication is basically, you know, I'm Tony, I found this, you know, $5 million apartment complex. Um, I'm going to own all the responsibilities of managing this property on a day-to-day basis, but I'm going to um, pull a bunch of money from passive investors to help me actually buy this property because I don't have about $5 million of my own to do it. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a very mature kind of market around apartment syndication, but there isn't quite yet that same structure for short-term rentals. And it, and it blows my mind because the returns are better in the short-term rental space than they are in apartment syndication. Whereas, you know, it's a good deal in apartment syndication, if you can get 10 or 12%, but on, you know, again, in the short-term rental space, you're seeing 30 plus percent cash on cash return. So I think long-term for me, I'd really like to set up some kind of structure where we can help passive investors get even better returns than what they're getting in the apartment syndication mm-hmm. space and apply that to short-term rentals. That's cool. I haven't heard anyone thinking about that. So I think there's definitely a lot of space in it too, because I don't want to say syndication is saturated, but uh, even even having the chance to get to know Joe and a bunch of his students and now a bunch of my friends that are syndicators, like it's not what it was 10 years ago. And I think it's kind of one of those situations that's like, who moved my cheese and figuring out where you can still be successful and find returns for your investors. You know, like everyone's just chasing yield. It doesn't matter what the vehicle is. Some might sound sexier or some may seem to have less risk, but at the end of the day, it's just where's the yield and it might change over time. So that's really cool. Um, Tony, what's the best way for people to get in touch, follow you on social uh, or just follow the journey? Yeah. So obviously, like I said, at the top of the show, um, Bigger Pockets Real Estate Rookie Show comes out every Wednesday. Uh, you can find me there and we, we interview guests and share stories every week. Um, for me, uh, follow me on Instagram. It's at Tony J. Robinson. That's the best place to connect with me. Um, I do my best to respond to all the messages that come through and uh, you know provide as much value as I can there. So that, that's the place to find me. All right. Awesome. Tony, thank you so much for coming on, man. Best of luck in 2020 and beyond. Yeah. Thank you, brother. I appreciate it. I hope the listeners got some value from this. Hey, you millennial millionaire. Are you looking for help getting to the next level in real estate? Are you looking for accountability and strategy to achieve your goals? If so, Jonathan is now taking on one-on-one students and opening a few spots in his private mastermind. It's affordable and welcome to everyone. If you had any questions or think you may need a boost, send Jonathan a message on Facebook or email at johnjfarber at outlook.com. 